I am um, so privileged to be standing here this morning, really excited. Um, it's been good. We've been going through the books, um, starting with Ezra, Ezra. I almost said Ezra, Nehemiah. I almost blend those two together. Um, Ezra is where we're starting. We will be going through Nehemiah, too. Um, and this has been such a great book to go through so far. Um, so if you've joined us for the last few weeks, you know that we are walking through those two books. Um, and Pastor Jesse shared, I think on the first Sunday that he spoke, about how that is, it was one whole scroll. Ezra and Nehemiah was one book. It really wasn't separated till like late in the 16th century. Um, that's why it's really important that we read both of these together because it is one big story. And sometimes I think we look, um, especially at the Old Testament, and we think, well, those are nice stories, but really, is it that important? I mean, isn't really the good stuff in the New Testament, you know, the Old Testament, Ezra, why? Why are we going through this? But everything in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, points to Jesus. Everything. And in Ezariah and Nehemiah, as we read about the redemption of the Jewish people from exile, it points to a greater redemption. The Jewish people coming back to their home isn't the end of the story. It is the catalyst for the redemption in Jesus to come. Right? And that's why it's so important to study these texts. Because over and over, we get to see the faithfulness of God, the fulfillment of prophecy, and the redemption of his people. That is so powerful. So I want to take a moment... And just go back briefly and review where we have come so far. And I'm going to ask Dave if he could put up, I have a timeline, so you guys can kind of follow along and see where things have happened. So if you remember, we started off that Judea was being invaded by Babylon and Jerusalem is totally destroyed. And you might remember the name King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon, and he took the Jews into captivity. Now, not all the Jews were taken. Some were left behind, but the majority of the Jewish people were taken into captivity and sent off to exile in Babylon. And so for about 70 years, the Jews remained in exile in Babylon. So let's just think about that for a moment. 70 years. That is a long time to be in exile, which means they would have had to create new lives for themselves And even the prophet Jeremiah, in his letter to the Jews in exile, he even told them this. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the Jews were well established in the Babylonian community when Babylon was captured by Persia. So now King Cyrus is in control. And you might recall from what Pastor Jesse covered in Ezra chapter 1 that King Cyrus was moved by God and issued a decree allowing the Jews to return home. So we see this first group of Jewish people leave exile and go to Jerusalem. Does anyone remember the name of that leader that took them? It's such a common, easy name. Zerubbabel, right? Zerubbabel. How did you not remember? Um, But he led about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem. And I can imagine that this was no small feat. Now, at work, I have a heck of a time getting five people to come to a meeting on time, letting alone getting 50,000 people to go to a different country. But he and the Lord did it. And their main mission was to rebuild the temple. 
Now, does anyone remember what was the first thing that they rebuilt when they got there? The altar. That's right. So a few years later, a few years after King Cyrus declares the Jews can return, the altar is rebuilt. But these guys keep running into roadblocks and delays, and eventually they were totally stopped from building the temple. And a pretty significant amount of time passes. For about 15 years, that whole temple rebuild stops. But then King Darius writes another decree instructing them to resume work, and the temple starts again. So finally, about 23 years after those first Jews were released from captivity, the temple is completed. They dedicated the temple, and if you remember from Pastor Dan's sermon last week, they celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. And that brings us to where Pastor Dan left us off last week at the end of chapter 6. So I'm going to be covering chapters 7 and 8. So if you want to take out your Bibles or whatever device that you have that you use for your Bible, you can follow along. We're going to start in chapter 7. But before we get too deep into this chapter, there's something pretty significant that I want to point out in these first three words of chapter 7. You're like, three words? And I'm like, yes, these first three words are very important. Verse 1 starts out, after these things. Now, I want to clarify what's being talked about here. At the end of chapter 6, the temple is dedicated. But then, if you could bring up that timeline again, if you look at that timeline, what comes next? King Xerxes' banquet. So do you remember King Xerxes? He was the one. He was having the big party, and he wanted to parade the queen in front of all of his drunken friends, and she refused, so he fired her, and she couldn't be the queen anymore, and then he went out to find a queen, and the queen that he found was Esther. That's right. So the entire book of Esther fits here between Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7. And then... Xerxes' reign ends, and Artaxerxes becomes king. And that's where we start in chapter 7. Over 50 years from the time the temple is completed. So when Ezra says, after these things, it means way after these things. right? From the beginning of the book of Ezra to chapter 7, almost 80 years has passed. So this second return of the Jews that we're going to be learning about today back to Jerusalem is a long time. It's basically a lifetime from the first return. So here we go, chapter 7, and we finally are meeting the author, Ezra, for the first time. And Ezra probably wasn't even born during the first return. More than likely, he was born and raised in Babylon. And something cool, though, that I discovered while studying for this teaching is that Ezra in Hebrew means Yahweh has helped. Isn't that cool? Um, I just thought that was pretty significant and amazing, especially as we read on and and read the story of Ezra. So let's take a look at these first verses. And Ezra 7, um, chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Atub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meroth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, and the son of Aaron, the chief priest. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for tolerating my total horrible pronunciation of all those Hebrew names. And sometimes we get to these genealogies and we just kind of 
gloss them over and like, okay, well, there's all this list of names. But there's an important reason that Ezra is including this. So he's establishing his lineage, right? And this isn't even his complete lineage. You can find his complete lineage in Chronicles. But he does this to show that his lineage can be traced back all the way to Aaron, right? Aaron, the brother of Moses, the very first priest. Now, this is more than Ezra just doing some name dropping, like, look who I'm related to, right? It's when we see the name of Aaron, what do we think of? Moses, right? Maybe even the Exodus. So you see, Ezra is about to lead another Exodus, And Ezra wants his readers to think about God's deliverance from Egypt. And this genealogy list serves as a reminder of God's faithfulness. And then let's take a look at verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Now, the NIV says Ezra was a teacher. Your version might say scribe, right? So a scribe, especially in the time of the Old Testament, was more than what we might think of as just a secretary. To be a scribe required a significant education and skill. So you remember, this culture was an oral culture. Not a lot of people read or wrote. So if you could, that meant you were well-educated, And it also says in this verse that he was well-versed in the law of Moses. So he was specifically trained and held a lot of knowledge in the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament. So Ezra was a Torah expert. We might say he was a Bible nerd. And this established his authority to speak and also shows that he had a dedication and devotion to the word of the Lord. So starting again at verse 7, it says, And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. So what's interesting in these first nine verses is that these nine verses summarize all of chapter seven. So this is a very specific literary style used by Bible authors. And when reading, especially in the Old Testament, if you're not aware of it, you might go on to the next verses and say, wait, didn't we just read? Didn't this all just happen? Or is it happening again? It can get confusing. So it's important to note that these first nine verses give a summary of the story that Ezra is about to tell. And I also want to point out something in verse nine that we're going to see repeated throughout these two chapters. And in verse 9, it says, for the good hand of his God was on him. Throughout these chapters, Ezra continually points back to God. Everything that is happening, all the favor he finds, he is continually giving the glory and the recognition to God. Now, this speaks a lot of the character of Ezra. He recognized that it is God who is going to make everything happen. And then we get to verse 10, and now we're going to get into the details of exactly what happened. Verse 10, though, 
is a very important verse. I think this is a very important verse in all of Scripture. And this is something that we really should be paying attention to. And verse 10 says this, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This verse tells us so much about the character of Ezra. He devoted himself to the study of the word, to obey the word, and to teach the word. And this is another reason why the readers of this book would see that Ezra had the authority to lead God's people out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. Because he was committed to studying, obeying, and teaching the word of the Lord. And if you look back at the beginning of 10, it says he devoted himself to these things. Some translations say he had determined himself. Some say set his heart. And if you look at the original Hebrew word used here, which is kun, its definition is direct the heart toward. So Ezra's heart was always directed, was focused on studying, obeying, and teaching the word of God. Now, I just want to pause here for a second because I think this verse speaks to so much more than just Ezra's dedication and character, but also describes so well what our relationship should be with God's word. I think of Ezra and how he was so devoted to being immersed in the word of God. But how often do we say, ugh, that Bible plan reading, gosh, 10 to 15 minutes in the Bible, I, I just don't have time for that today. I'm just too busy. I just recently read a study about how often people read the Bible. And this study was done by the American Bible Society, and that was this year. And they found that 24% of Christians read the Bible weekly. Only 24% pick up and read their Bible once a week. And there has been a significant decline in Bible users in the last two years. So back in 2021, 50% of Americans said that they use their Bible three or more times a year. Today, that is 38%. And when asked why, why are there so few people that are turning to Scripture, and they were given six options to choose from, the top answer was that they don't have enough time. Church, our Bibles do no good just sitting on our shelves or just as another app on our phone that we don't open. If we want to operate in God's will, if we want to live a life worthy of our calling, if we want to deepen our relationship with God, we have to study, obey, and share his word. It is the only way that we can root ourselves and not be swayed by the things of this world. Because our hearts can be turned by so many things in this world if we are not grounded in the Lord. And remember Ezra, he was living in a very pagan culture. I am sure he was bombarded every day by things not of God. But he knew where his heart had to be focused in order to turn away from those things. It had to be focused on the Lord. How can we know God and his plans for us if we don't spend time in his word? 
I would encourage you to really think about this verse, maybe even memorize this verse in Ezra, because it really is so foundational to our walk with the Lord, studying, obeying, and sharing his word. Now, taking a look at verses 11 through 26, we have a letter from King Artaxerxes. And starting at 12, he says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. So Artaxerxes writes this letter, giving permission that the people of Israel can return back to Jerusalem with Ezra. And this is really significant that Artaxerxes is allowing this. These are people that have been living in this region for nearly a century, right? They have homes, they have jobs, they contribute to the economy of the area. Just think of the economic impact it would have for a large people group to get up and leave. Right? Huge. Typically, the um, kings would allow, like, the poor people to return to their home country because it really doesn't matter to their economy. But Artaxerxes is willing to let anyone who wants to go, go back to Jerusalem. And not only is he letting them go, but he's giving them money to go. So starting in verse 15, we read, And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, bowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. And if you keep reading, it talks about all the supplies that he's giving them also. And scholars estimate that it's around two years worth of supplies that he's giving them. So Artaxerxes is allowing all of these people to leave. Plus, he is giving them money and supplies to do so. And we start to see later on in this letter his reasoning for all this. In verse 23, it says, Whatever the Lord God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? So Artaxerxes was a polytheist. The Persian culture worshipped many different gods. They, they prayed to all sorts of gods for all sorts of things. So Artaxerxes wants to make sure that Ezra's God doesn't get angry with him. So he's making sure he's sending Ezra off with a huge offering. But, but he's also wanting to ensure that his law is followed. Because if we take a look at verse 26, it says, Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So the law of your God and the law of the king. So Artaxerxes is saying the people have to obey God's law, but they have to obey my law too. Right? So as I go into a different country, he wants to make sure he still has a hold on them as far as the law. But the real reason we see why he uh, allowed the Jewish people to leave is starting in 27. And we see what Ezra says here. Praise be to the Lord the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials, because the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. I took courage, and I gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. We see that phrase again from Ezra, the hand of the Lord my God was on me. Ezra again gives the glory right back to the Lord. 
God is the one who moved the heart of the king to release the Jews. God is the one who moved the king to give money and supplies. Ezra does not take any credit for himself. He doesn't say, well, because I'm such a great negotiator, the king did all this. Right? Or he doesn't say, because I'm so smart and well studied, the king did all this. He points it all back to God. For the hand of the Lord was on Ezra. So let's consider this scenario. A pagan Persian king is releasing a people group that were captured, sending them back to their home, which certainly will impact his kingdom. And he is sending them off with money and protection. How crazy does that sound? What? Why? Why would a conquering king let people go and give them money to go? But Ezra tells us why. It's because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And church, I think sometimes we get so caught up in worry and fear about what is happening around us and the troubles that we face that we can't imagine God doing the impossible for us. But Ezra reminds us that no matter what earthly leaders are in charge, God is still on the throne. Everything that happens is in accordance to God's will and purposes. Our God is the God of the impossible, and he is able to do more than all we ask or imagine. And this is why we study and obey and share God's word, because we need to share what the Lord has done in our life. What an encouragement that is. Every single good thing I have is from the Lord. And like Ezra, I need to remember to glorify him in everything. Because when we stop to proclaim what God has done, it pushes out that fear of the enemy that he wants us to be caught up in. Because perfect love casts out fear and God's love is perfect. And makes me think of our Forward 20 fund for our new building that Pastor Dan two years ago believed that with the Lord we could raise $400,000. And most people will think that was crazy talk. A church of about 120 people raising $400,000, that's impossible. Yet here we are celebrating what God has done today because the hand of the Lord is upon it. And church, the enemy is really good at telling you what you can't do. He is an expert at convincing you that your problem or your circumstance is too big. It's impossible. But Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Ezra believed that all things were possible with God. He faced impossible circumstances, yet he believed the hand of God was on him. And when we study, obey, and share God's word, we can be reminded that nothing is impossible for God. Now, jumping back into Ezra, we are now at chapter 8, and we start off again with another genealogy. And I won't try and butcher those names, but this one shows the family line of who are traveling with Ezra back to Jerusalem. And it shows both links to both Aaron and King David. But what's interesting is how much smaller of a group this is this time. 
So you remember the first group that came out of exile was about 50,000 people. But this group, including women and children, were only about four to 5,000. So let's think about these people for a moment. For their entire lives, they have only known living in Babylon. They've never seen Jerusalem. All they know is from the stories that have been passed down to them. Yet, they are leaving the life that they know, uprooting their families, and heading back to the place where God is calling them. What faith that is, right? What obedience. And it really made me stop and think about how big of a fuss that I make sometimes when God calls me to do something not nearly as life-changing. These people moved with faith. Now, a lot of the Jewish people remained. We don't know exactly why, but I would suppose that they were probably comfortable where they were at. They had families and routines and friends and jobs. It was just too much to give that all up. And I think sometimes we have the same attitude when God places a call on our life. We've become far too comfortable living in Babylon. Because, church, we are living in Babylon. This is not our home. Right? There's an old song that says, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Our home is in the kingdom of God. But the enemy wants us to be pulled into the culture of the world. And there are so many Christians who are content just to come and sit in a service on a Sunday morning and then go home and live life like nothing is different from life in the world. But does obeying the Lord call us to live a life that the world leads? No, we are to be set apart, different, people willing to listen to the Lord when he calls us out of what is familiar and comfortable and journey the path toward our kingdom home. We will be challenged with just go with the flow of our culture rather than be obedience to God. Pastor Jesse spoke a few weeks ago of the slow fade where we allow the world to creep into our lives a little bit at a time until suddenly we look around and realize that we have wandered so far off of God's path. But church, we are not left to navigate this world alone. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit. We need to be focusing our hearts on God and his word and allow the Holy Spirit to guide our steps. We need to be a light in the world, but not allow the things of this world to distract us from God's call on our life. And church, God will call us out of what we are comfortable doing. That may scare you a bit. It scares me a bit, right? We like being comfortable. But when we make ourselves available to the Lord, we get to be a part of him doing amazing things. When we step out, we will face challenges. And Ezra was no different. If we look at verse 15, Ezra says, I assembled them at the canal that flows towards Ahava, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So they're camping just outside of town. They're getting ready to go. And Ezra realizes, wait, we don't have any Levites. And Levites are different from the priests. It was important to have the Levites serving in the temple. But Ezra could have said, well, 
No one volunteered to come. I guess we're just going to figure this out. We'll do the next best thing. But no, he knew the significance of the role that God gave the Levites. And he was bringing God's people to worship in the temple. And he needed the Levites there to do that. But the faith of Ezra is incredible. And we see this phrase again from Ezra in verse 18. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us. They brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Bali, son of Levi, son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 in all. So they go back and they find Levites to bring with them. And Ezra doesn't say here that he was able to persuade some to come, but by what? By the gracious hand of God that the Levites changed their minds and decided to make the journey back to Jerusalem. And sometimes when we're following the Lord and especially in a new calling from him in our life, things don't go how we think they are going to go. In fact, I think I would say every time they don't go the way I think that they're going to go. But if God brings you to it, he is going to bring you through it, but in his way and in his timing. Ezra could have rushed on forward and figured, ah, they can make do without the Levites. But he wanted to do this God's way. And when we stop trying to take control of things ourselves and lay them at God's feet, he will do incredible things. His hand will be on us. So now they are finally ready to head out and start the journey to Jerusalem. And in verses 21 and 22, it says this there by the Ahava canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So now I want to give us a picture here of just how long of a journey we're talking about. So my husband, Dave, he loves a good map. And um, I know Mr. Kent Ross also loves a good map. So for them, I have a map up here to show you um, the route that they were going to take. So the green line was the first journey that was the revolt leading them. And the red one is the route that Ezra was to take. Now, it's a much shorter route. But it's also a much more dangerous one. So this was mostly desert. And this route was well known for that people would get robbed and attacked along this way. So Ezra knew, though, the journey he was about to take. He knew he was bringing wealth and the wealth of people's homes and women and children along this route. And when I say this route was shorter, it was still 900 miles. Okay, 900 miles, and they aren't heading down to the U-Haul to go rent some trucks and drive across the desert, right? They are piling this on donkeys and camels and carrying it, right? 900 miles in dangerous territory. It would be a 14-week journey. But how do they start their journey? By fasting. And why do they start by fasting? Ezra says, so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey. See, Ezra knew who their protector and provider was. Ezra knew that God could bring them through the wilderness safely. In verse 22, it's kind of funny because Ezra says he wasn't going to ask the king for a guard because he told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks at him. 
So he didn't want to tell the king how amazing God is and then say, but could you send some soldiers with me anyways, just in case? No, he's committed to relying on the Lord. He wants to show the king that God is real. So now they've prayed and they've fasted, and now they are ready to set out on their journey. And in verse 31, we read, On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us. Ezra once again gives the glory right back to God. Ezra's unwavering reliance on God and recognizing that everything that is happening is from God is a huge theme that we see in chapter 7 and 8. And I think that that speaks so much to us today. Ezra had complete faith that the hand of God was upon him. He had faith in who God was. He didn't just rely on what his eyes could see or what was evident before him. He put faith in what was unseen. He believed that God was calling his people home and that the Lord was calling them. He would make it happen. He believed that God's word is true. He believed the character of who God is. He believed that the same God that delivered the Israelites from Egypt is the same God delivering them from Babylon. And how did Ezra have so much faith? I think it goes back to what we see in verse 10 of chapter 7. He studied God's word. He obeyed God's word and he shared God's word. If we want to walk in the same faith as Ezra, we have to get into God's word. It doesn't mean that we have to have a theology degree or a Ph.D. in Bible studies. It means we need to be in God's word reading it. We have to let it impact our hearts and our minds and more than just a few times a year. So how do we let it impact us? We obey. We have to be doers of the word. In James, it says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, And don't forget what you heard. Then God will bless you for doing it. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up. You know, church, there are a lot of people out there who know the Bible. They they study the Bible professionally. But there is a difference between reading the Bible and putting it into practice. That's what obeying is. We can't just spend time reading the Bible and then don't do what it says. In the everyday things we run up against, we need to be doing what God calls us to do. Because if we can't walk out in obedience and faith in the everyday things, when the big things come, and the big things will come, we won't be able to walk those out effectively. To obey God means to do what he says. 
And one of those things he has told us to do is to share his word. We have been given the great commission. Ezra knew it was important to share God's word. Jesus commands us to share. In Matthew, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. When we share... We not only provide hope and life in Christ to others, but we reaffirm our faith to ourselves. We remember the word of the Lord. We share how God has impacted our lives, and we get to honor God with our testimony. We defeat the enemy with our testimony. And it was such a powerful message by Pastor Dan a few weeks ago when he called us to be stirred up by the Lord. That's what studying and obeying and sharing does. It stirs us up. It allows him to transform us and it lets the Holy Spirit work in us and through us. And church, don't you believe that it's about time for us to get stirred up for God? To quit sitting on the sidelines. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. But if we are content with comfortable instead of letting the Lord stir us, then we won't be able to experience the abundant life that God has for us. Ezra had the faith to move thousands of people through dangerous territory. The faith to leave what he and everyone else knew in obedience to where God was calling them to. So church, today I want to challenge you with this. And I say this to myself just as much as I say this to you. What is God calling you to today? What journey have you been putting off because of fear or uncertainty? Where have you become comfortable in Babylon and you need to be stirred up and step out. I have personal experience with wanting to stay in the comfortable. There have been times where I have allowed fear and uncertainty to stop me from answering God's call in my life. And when God called me to be a pastor, I argued with him for two years. I was comfortable in my little world that I had created for myself. But when I finally surrendered to him, my life was radically changed. And I have seen God move in my life in such amazing and powerful and impossible ways. What I would have missed if I would have chosen to stay comfortable. We are not home yet, church. Every one of us has work to do as believers in Jesus. Every one of us has been called to go. But like Ezra kept saying, when we go in obedience to the Lord, we have his powerful hand upon us. He is in control and he can bring you through anything. All he asks is that you be available. So as we sing... Would you ask the Lord to reveal to you where you need to step out today? 
And if you feel like you've been holding back from where the Lord has been calling you, we're going to have our prayer team up here, and they would love to pray with you about that. Now is the time. Let's commit to study, obey, and share God's word. Let's be willing to answer when the Lord calls us to move. And church, when we step out in obedience, we will be able to look back and say, the hand of the Lord was upon us. Would you stand with us as we sing?